Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Stanford University School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Welcome back to What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. Today we're talking about eating disorders. They are cunning diseases, taking hold slowly and subtly, often in secret, thieving illnesses that gradually steal both mental and physical health, and starting in the young and vulnerable years with impacts that can last a lifetime. If not addressed, Life-threatening medical conditions can develop, sometimes with fatal outcomes, including suicide. This marks eating disorders as having the highest mortality rate of all psychological illnesses. But the other side of these terrifying statistics are some incredibly heartening numbers. Thanks to the research and clinical work of our guest, Dr. James Locke, a significant number of patients and their families can look forward to full recovery. And many more can plan on full and healthy lives while successfully managing their condition. This, of course, is dependent upon early access to effective treatment. A treatment you're going to hear a lot about today is FBT, family-based treatment, which Dr. Locke has long researched and successfully employs as director of the Stanford Eating Disorder Program for children and adolescents, and is working to make more widely accessible. Dr. Locke, Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Pediatrics in the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, is recognized as a global expert on eating disorders, with hundreds of writings on the subject, including professional treatment manuals, and is co-author of a book that has been a lifeline for parents, Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder. So let's begin our conversation with Dr. James Locke. Dr. Locke, thanks so much for joining us today on What Makes Up Your Mind. Pleasure to be here. Let's begin with your impression of this disease, these disorders. You've described it as insidious and self-perpetuating, that these are illnesses and not willful choices. And that you've even said that as we encounter them in either ourselves or our loved ones, our children, that they're just strange illnesses. Would you elaborate on that? Sure. We're talking about a range of eating disorders, everything from anorexia nervosa, which is essentially a restrictive eating disorder, and then bulimia nervosa, which in which there are binge eating and purging cycles, and binge eating disorder itself, which is binge eating without purging in any way. And then we're talking about something called ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which is less to do with body image or concerns about appearance, but struggles with having appetite, being interested in food, being afraid of consequences of eating like vomiting or, or, or highly selective eating. By that, I mean just being so, so picky that you don't meet your nutritional requirements by the choices that you make. So we have a range of of disorders we're talking about here. With the term insidious, I'm mostly talking about here the disorders like anorexia and bulimia, meaning that 
things start innocently enough often. You know, you think you want to lose a little weight or you think you would like to be more fit or something like that. And it ends up getting um, uh, to be some something that you actually no longer have any control over. And that's how it's insidious. With something like ARFID, though, this is often something that starts in very young childhood where these predilections and to taste and to texture and just a low general interest in food seems to be pretty much biologically informed really almost from the get-go for most of these kids. So it's less insidious, but it is definitely a problem that emerges and gets clearer and clearer over time as kids grow older. So most of the kids who get treated for ARFID are usually around eight or nine by the time the parents and the pediatricians are getting concerned that they haven't grown out of it. And would you say that then the uh, anorexia and bulimia, that would start maybe a little later? Is that more of a teenager, an adolescent disease? Yes. Yes. If you sort of looked at the age developmentally when most of the disorders onset, of course, there was exceptions, but most of the ARFID diagnoses onset in early childhood and middle childhood, anorexia and bulimia are illnesses of adolescence, binge eating typically is diagnosed somewhere in the 20s. Who suffers from this? Is it a a gender-heavily separated issue, um, cultural? The typical kind of answer to that is that eating disorders, certainly anorexia, bulimia, uh, are more commonly identified in, in women. Binge eating and ARFID are pretty much equally Uh, prevalent in both of the genders. But what I would say is about anorexia and bulimia is that as we've looked more closely over time at who's presenting and how we're looking at these illnesses, we probably have undercounted men uh, and boys in these groups. Um, In other words, the way that we conceive the diagnostic criteria and or the way that we ask questions about symptoms might have biased us away from getting boys and men to say the things that would they would need to say to get a diagnosis. That said, the current numbers are about 85 to 90% of people with anorexia nervosa are going to be women, and uh, it's about 60 to 70% will be women in bulimia nervosa. Is it the same type of treatment, the same approach for all eating disorders? We have different levels of data and information about treatments for these disorders. So we know more about the treatment of bulimia nervosa, for example, and binge eating disorder than we do about anorexia nervosa or ARFID. There are approaches that may be relevant across diagnoses, but the data around whether they are truly transdiagnostic, the way that you're talking about now, is really still not there uh, for any specific treatment. For bulimia, for example, in adults at least, the best evidence-based treatment is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. That's a well-researched treatment and has effectiveness rates of about, in terms of what we would call something like a cure, and about 35 to 40%. Other people get better from their symptoms, but they're not totally resolved in terms of recovering. For children and adolescents, Actually, family treatment is superior to CBT in the studies that we have. There's an age-related difference there between which treatments would you choose for someone under 18 and someone over 18. 
Among your research and your work, you have put together, I think, the first of its kind set of guidelines for diagnosing. I'd like to ask what those are now, just generally, and what did we have to rely on beforehand? Well, we're using adult criteria in the past, and the problem with those was that it doesn't take into account growth, expected growth, cognitive ability, verbal ability, ability to describe one's inner states, all things that are harder to do if you're a younger person than you are an adult and have developed your abstract verbal abilities and internal awareness such that you can describe it better. So those are the kinds of things that we were depending on in the past, more adult-centric kinds of things. I'm a child psychiatrist, so I think about these things more That's the big shift that we have got a much more developmental awareness about both the psychological and the physiologic impacts of starvation and cognition in younger people. Do we know the causes? Is there a specific cause? It's a biological uh, disease, um, but Mm. not willful choice, but certainly circumstances. Can they exacerbate the, the... the possibility of this in a child, or do do we even know yet? So there, are, there's there's two really important distinctions to make about this causation versus risk factors. We don't know the cause, right? So we don't know the cause of of really any psychiatric disorder. We can talk about something called multifactorial kinds of causes, which is about basically hand waving, saying we we really don't know, but it's a multitude of possible things, including genetics, environment, places, things that happen, context, and things like this. They're all relevant, but none of them on their own explain why someone specifically develops anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, ARFID, or or binge eating. Risk factors is a different matter. We can pretty much say that being a young adolescent female is a risk factor for an eating disorder. If you were going to screen for eating disorders, this is one of the populations you'd be sure to look at because they're a higher rate, higher risk group. You know, there are also risk factors associated with things that you do, like certain activities, uh, which require paying close attention to weight and shape. Things like gymnastics or ballet dancing or wrestling or modeling, for example, all these are things that put someone at risk because there's so much attention being paid to appearance and to specifically weight. And actually performance can be affected by weight too, negatively. Being an ice skater doesn't make you, it's not the cause of anorexia nervosa, but it's a risk factor. Have we identified any neural pathways or brain wiring that we can put along with the risk factors or comorbidities, a prevalence of depression or anxiety? or Yeah, yeah, two really related but different questions. There are some data on alterations of reward circuitry in anorexia and bulimia, and these studies have been done in mostly adult women. And reward circuitry has to do with the way that a person experiences pleasure, right? And so the reward circuitry in anorexia appears to be very, very sensitive, meaning they're, they get overstimulated easily. So uh, this, this work is, was done by Walter Kay down at UC San Diego. It's a very interesting hypothesis. And the opposite is the case, say, for bulimia and perhaps binge eating. There, there's a under response so that you get a less robust response to reward. We don't know a lot. We don't know exactly how that interplays with symptoms, 
We don't know if this is really mediated by dopamine or serotonin, but reward processing is usually a dopaminergic kind of process. So there are some studies there. They're preliminary. They're interesting. So far, they don't lead to any kind of specific kind of process related to treatment, however. In other words, we don't know what to do with that information exactly. But that's how it is with brain science for usually a long time before you can actually apply it. And the environmental risk factors appear to be things like exposure to the thin ideal uh, in the West, meaning things like models uh, that are thin and the overvaluation of thinness in terms of social processing and choosing of partners. These kinds of things have effects, particularly for bulimia nervosa. We know this from looking at other kinds of brain imaging studies where you're looking at triggers around the way things are valued by showing images to people and then looking at how their brain reacts. Your evidence-based treatment, you said that there was a grave need for that. I'd like to know more about those findings and what led you to the family-based treatment. But first, what was offered before and what, what was it based on for kids? Was it more of an adult treatment plan for kids? Um, what's the difference between what you found and what we had to rely on before? Well, it's a great question. It's broadly, I would say that there's expected to be a trickle-down effect of adult interventions for children and adolescents, and it doesn't trickle down. <laughs> um, in other words, kids are different than adults um, often, and um, what works for an adult might not reasonably be expected to work for kids for a bunch of different reasons. And so for anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, the expected treatments would have been those which, on which research was done, which was on adults. And there are also just many more researchers in the adult field of eating disorders, although there are not as many as there need to be. There are even fewer in child. So there's, a, there's been a long impediment towards learning about how to treat eating disorders, despite the fact that I pointed out earlier that anorexia and bulimia both onset during teenage years, you would think, well, okay. But that's really not how it works. So for years, we were using other kinds of treatments. And the mainstay of treatment for so long, over a hundred and something years, was just inpatient long-term stays for anorexia nervosa. Specifically, kids would stay in hospitals or equivalents of hospitals for years. This was seen as an important way to help them because families and particularly parents were viewed very negatively. Parents were seen as having somehow caused this problem or been in overly controlling or intrusive on their young, usually young women, children. And so the idea was we need to get them away from those, those parents. And that was the mainstay for many, 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 many years. And that, that came out of a psychoanalytic idea. And so the approach, the psychodynamic and psychoanalytic approach that was used for many years was based on a sort of parent pathological model, the idea that the young person was herself underdeveloped and anxious about separating from her parents and ineffective. And so that trying to control her life by controlling her weight, the answer to that problem, uh, and, and that was the kind of treatment that was offered. There was never any evidence that it was useful, mind you, nor have the studies of long-term hospitalization or even short-term hospitalization shown any kind of uh, evidence that they will cure anybody 
they mediate symptoms acutely, of course, because you have control of the environment, but they they don't lead to long-term generalized recovery. If they did, we would do that all the time because people anorexia nervosa, which is so life-threatening that if we could cure them by putting them in hospital for a few months, that would that we'd do it. But that's just not what happens. Inpatient program or treatment can can only address certain kinds of things. And one of the problems is that when you are in an environment like a hospital, it's not a normal environment. And when you really want to change one's thinking and, and behavior, you really need to do that in the environment where you're actually going to be living. Otherwise, it doesn't generalize well. And that's that's what would happen. People would be, they'd get their weight restored, they'd seem better, and then they would be discharged. And then within a few months, they would have relapsed. Let's talk then in depth now about your family-based treatment, a, a complete turnaround from the treatment you described that uh, we had to rely on as a society and as families for so long. This is very involving of uh, particularly parents, but other adults who are active in a child or adolescent's life. You've been researching this for quite some time. Yeah. Well, the the approach was first developed in the UK at the, a place called the Mosley Hospital in the late 80s, actually, 1980s. Uh, preliminary studies suggested it would be effective. Very small studies. We're talking about 20 people, 10 in a group. But what was important about them was no other studies had really shown any kind of efficacy for anorexia nervosa, uh, which is which is the illness for which family-based treatment was initially developed. But not everyone can move to London and get treatment. So I had been the medical director of the inpatient medical psychiatry service on at Packard Hospital, which included eating disorders. I read about these studies and developed an interest in trying to develop some kind of evidence for uh, some kind of treatment to be effective. And that led to uh, the first grant that I wrote, uh, which was in 1998, to study family-based treatment. And it was uh, only the second U.S. randomized clinical trial for adolescents for anorexia nervosa when it was published, which when you think about it, anorexia nervosa was described in the medical literature 1874. So it's shocking that we had so little to go on. Anyway, I went to the UK uh, as part of that grant and uh, learned about this treatment and wrote a manual of it so that it could actually be consistently delivered. And that study was the, what we call it, the hallmark first study of family-based treatment that showed that it was an effective treatment for adolescents at a scale. We had enough participants in the study to actually get treatment effects that were stable. We, of course, have conducted other randomized clinical trials. We're talking a long time, 25 years of research, to move a treatment from basic preliminary data to now a treatment that is recognized as first-line treatment for anorexia nervosa in adolescents in most of the international guidelines for treatments. But the attitudes also shifted so much. I mean, the negative view that I was describing about psychoanalytic thinking and, and the view of parents as being uh, interfering or, or complicit in some way, family-based treatment really takes a totally opposite approach to that. It, the idea is that young people with serious illness need their parents to help them and their families are a resource to them, not a problem. And that without families, it's going to be very difficult for them to recover. They're 13 or 14 years old. And 13 and 14-year-olds, as anyone who's talked to one, <laughs> need a lot of help <laughs> thinking through their life. And if they have a serious illness, in addition, it's that much 
more important that parents and families help them. And the bias that we had held for so long against parents was really not justified by any literature. People's belief system, rather than, than actually in data, kept us doing things that probably were not helpful for a very long time. Well, I would imagine, and I'm guessing, please correct me, but even if there are situations going on at home that are stressful, that may exacerbate uh, the problem, the, the eating disorder, one would still want family involved to help address that organically, too. So isolating families uh, from the patient just, I don't know, just doesn't seem to make sense on several well, levels. It, <laughs> well, well, yeah, well, but it did to many, many pe- people with, uh, who treated eating disorders for 100 years. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, it is hard to understand now. And by the way, I, by saying that parents can be helpful, it doesn't mean any family doesn't have problems or difficulties and that there aren't issues in families. It's are they relevant uh, enough? Are they are they contributing or maintaining or somehow causing this problem? And there's just not data to suggest that that's the case. Now, families get very confused when their son or daughter develops an illness like anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. It's a, it's a shock to them. Uh, it's a surprise. They don't, the behaviors are often very strange. They're very difficult uh, initially to confront or know about even. That, that's the insidious part. And so they get pretty much in place before the parents have even really got a chance to recognize it as a problem. And then what to do about it? There's so much pushback and so much worry on the part of the young person who is stuck with this illness that parents are understandably like, well, we, we don't know what to do. That's, that's the first problem that we face when trying to help families move from a frozen position of, we don't know how to help her, we've tried everything, to, no, we can help her, we just need to find a way. And that movement is the critical movement that happens in the families that respond well to family-based treatment. They all start off confused and dismayed and worried and anxious, but they, the, there's a portion of them who move from feeling ineffective to actually saying, ah, we just need to actually buckle down a bit and think more about what to do. And the therapist helps them problem solve around these problems. Well, I'm sure recognizing it and putting it into some context has got to be a huge challenge in the household, as you mentioned. Picky eating as a little one is not uncommon. Weight consciousness in a teenager is not uncommon. You, along with Dr. Daniel LaGrange, wrote what's become this seminal resource, the book, How to Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder. And in it, you talk about scenarios that may go on in the home that are very common and how long it takes maybe for a family to catch up and catch on to what's happening. Could you give us some of those to help folks see what's a problem and what's and what's normal? Well, it is very hard to see because it, uh, it's subtle often at the beginning and it looks like a healthy thing. So, I mean, if you're 13 or 14 year old says, you know what, I'm going to get more fit. I'm going to exercise a little more. That sounds like a pretty good idea to a lot of people, um, you know. Uh, also, you know, I don't. I think I'm eating too much candy and dessert. I think we won't. I won't eat that much of that. 
okay, that sounds healthy too. I mean, that's all those things sound good when they start. <laughs> um, but the problem is they, in certain people, they become quite obsessed and compulsive about them. Okay, no, I, I, I can't eat any dessert, then I can't eat any protein or I can't eat any carbohydrates. And I have to run for five hours. I can't run for 30 minutes. I mean, this is what over time I want to lose weight. Mm, okay. I lost five pounds, but I think it'd be better just to lose 10. No particular reason, but I just like the number 10. And I want to be below three digits, 100. This is the kind of thing that happens to the thinking that you, that, that is insidious. It's slow and, you know, it's relatively slow. It's usually about a six month time course, which before person notice it. And, and it's interesting if someone's losing weight slowly, which is often how it goes initially. Um, and then a sudden dip happens the last usually couple months before identification. Sometimes a grandparent or something will come visit and they'll go, Whoa, why does she look so skinny? Because the parents will have accommodated what they see understandably because they're just seeing her every day. They're also I mean, teens are incredibly good at hiding things. So what are some clues that uh, parents and families might want to watch out for, behavioral clues that there's hidden issues going on or, or activities that you've described? Well, the, the things that the kind of key things are skipping meals, not wanting to eat with the family, avoiding eating with each other, eating, being seen eating, suddenly becoming vegetarian, vegan or something like that as a part of an overall strategy to lose weight, sudden increase in exercise patterns, secretive leaving the table and going to the bathroom right after eating, you know, to potentially purge. These are kinds of things parents could look for. Can we walk through the process of a family that has recognized that there's a problem? Maybe they've gone to their pediatrician and they've been referred to a specialist that there could be a problem. They come to you. They come to the Stanford Child and Adolescent Eating Disorders Program and Luckily, they're going to be offered this family-based treatment. What happens? What's the process? Sure. They would be immediately screened for their medical stability, which means their heart rate would be checked. Um, the rhythm, is it normal rhythm? Uh, or do they have some kind of cardiac uh, arrhythmia? Are their blood pressures low? Or are they changing too much? Something called orthostasis. Is their body temperature low? So one of the things happens when you when you stop eating enough, your body can't metabolize anything except your body itself. So you start using muscle for, including cardiac muscle, which will affect then the potential for cardiac irregularities. Further, you know, as you lose weight, your body tries to stay warm. You've lost body fat, right? So now your body temperature drops. And that's a very worrying thing because you shouldn't have low body temperatures. It's kind of like a hibernation state. And we aren't meant to hibernate. We're not bears. So these things would be checked. Assuming that they are normal, then they would be referred for an evaluation. If they were abnormal, they would be hospitalized on our unit at Packard, the comprehensive care unit. And that unit specializes in, in the treatment of medical complexities related to eating disorders, as well as psychological interventions while they're there. If they're medically stable or after they're discharged, they would come to us and we would 
describe the treatments that are available for anorexia nervosa, and we offer two. We offer family-based treatment, and we offer something called adolescent-focused therapy. We offer these two because there are uh, studies which suggest each of them can be effective. Family-based treatment or FBT is more effective, but some families don't want to do it. So there's a choice made uh, at the end of an evaluation. So the evaluation consists of a dietitian, a pediatrician or an adolescent medicine doctor, and a psychologist or psychiatrist doing interviews with the family and the young person to use the diagnostic criteria from the DSM to meet criteria for having this disorder. After that, families chooses family-based treatment. The therapist would contact the family and we give them a handout describing the treatments and what this treatment looks like, which, by the way, is about 15 sessions uh, over about nine months on average. So you're doing once a week for about eight weeks and then every other week for another four and then once a month towards the end, so sort of titrated dose. And that's the sort of expected dose of FBT. So to help the family understand what they're getting into and what to expect. The treatment itself begins really with the first session, which is a, a session which um, is, is trying to help the family avoid the tendency to either minimize or be overwhelmed. Those are two different responses to what's happening to the family. Both are understandable and normal reactions, but they're not productive for making change, right? If you minimize, you don't you don't make change because you're not seeing the, the need for it. And if you're overwhelmed, you feel like you can't. So the purpose of the first session is to overcome those kinds of responses by helping the family know, first of all, that they have someone who is an expert can help them think through the problems, but also an expert that sees them as the expert in their family and their child, and that they were going to be making most of the decisions about what they do. The therapist is consulting with them. There's a big emphasis in the first session on trying to help the family understand that eating disorders are an illness. They're not to blame for causing it. It's not a fault in their child. It's not a fault in their parenting. Um, it's an illness that's developed. And now we need to think of that as an illness and face it down like we would any other illness and try and figure out how to change the things that are keeping it in place. So the session is really focused on creating the relationship between the therapist and the parents in particular. One of the hallmarks of anorexia nervosa that makes it such a difficult illness is that the people who suffer from it don't believe they have a problem. So the FBT waits to involve the young person's perspective until they're better able to provide one that's not totally informed by the kind of thinking that anorexia brings, which is very, very focused on not eating and calorie counting and weighing and all those kinds of things. And the second session in the FBT is a meal. Uh, we ask the families to bring a meal. The therapists ask the parents to pick the meal they think will help their child. And there's a lot of learning that happens from what parents choose. And then also during that session to try and help the parents figure out how to help their child eat a little bit more than they had planned, the child had planned. So this is an opportunity for the therapist to see what the parents do, how they work together, how they set goals or don't set goals, how they talk with their child, whether they're critical or whether they're supportive, if they're avoidant or, or if they're just stuck like deer in headlights. And the therapist will consult actively during that mealtime to try and help the family and the parents in particular move along and try some different things. 
from what I've experienced through friends or folks who are have dealt with this or are dealing with it at home, that mealtime becomes such a battleground. It's where the fear, uh, the anger, the control for the child and the parents all come together at, at a physical spot, the table. And so I'm fascinated by having the therapist and the family share a meal together. Yeah. It is true that the mealtime is is the time when everything kind of c- comes to a head, as it were. Um, and the illness itself, which is c- characterized by huge fear of eating and waking, fear is the operative term. It's not dislike. It's not, it, it, it's fear. They are terrified. And that generates a kind of emotional tension, which is very, very powerful and hard to manage. But the way you manage fear is through exposure, repeated exposures. And that's what happens in the environment of mealtime is that parents have to gain confidence that even though there's a lot of pushback because of the fear and understanding it as an illness, they have to become very clear about what needs to happen. Just like a nurse would, you need to take your medicine. If you don't take it, you're still going to stay sick. We use analogies like that because it helps parents to understand Eating is not a choice in these instances. This child is starving to death. You cannot not make her eat. She has to eat. But you don't argue with her. You don't, there's no point in debating because it's not a rational argument. You're no longer talking to the young person who was your child a few months ago. The things that are coming out of her mouth now are not characteristic at all of what she used to say or think about food or in relationship to you. You're hearing the fear and worry that is characteristic of having the illness of anorexia nervosa. So helping parents hold on to that idea and to persist despite the pushback, uh, that that begins with the family meal, but it's going to be the theme for almost the entire first phase. And the first phase, as I said, lasts about eight to 10 weeks. And then, then the second phase, the young person has gotten better enough that they can begin, in many cases, to contribute and begin to have a little more control on their own again, like they would developmentally normally have. And so there's a sort of trial period of them beginning to take on responsibility for some of the things that they used to do around food and exercise and eating. And that is the second phase. That's when there's enough resolution of the fear that there can actually now be a little exploration of self-management you're at a place where the young person's eating normally now in all the environments that she needs to. The third phase has to do with just like, okay, what's happened in your life? Adolescence has been disrupted by this illness for however long, one year, two year, whatever it is. How, how can we make sure that the usual problems of adolescence we can get back to now and not make eating problems the center of, of your life as a family and the young person's life as a developing teenager? And so that's the focus of the last part. You've talked about not just managing this disease. In fact, the, the title of your book, How to Beat an Eating Disorder, Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder, and you've talked about curing it. So that's really possible. It's not just going to end up being a chronic condition if it's caught in time and the right treatments available. You're talking about curing eating disorders, correct? Correct. Absolutely. And one of the things I think in the past that people mistakenly said was you couldn't um that once you had these illnesses they were like addictions or something you could never get over them 
Um, whether that's true of addictions or not is another question, but it's certainly not true of eating disorders if you catch them early enough. If you, however, develop anorexia nervosa and you stay ill for four or five years, it's going to be really hard to recover. The average person who develops anorexia, for example, 13 or 14, by the time they're 19, if, if they haven't had a response, it's likely they're going to have this illness for a very long time, if not their lifetime. But if you get it early and they get an effective treatment, for example, FBT, we expect cure rates of about 35 to 40%. That's meaning they are, they are by all, for all intrinsic purposes, they look just like any other kid height by, by weight, by their cognitions and worries and everything that just gone. There's another 20 or 30% that are greatly improved, meaning they still have some symptoms, but they are much better than they were. And then there's 15 or 20% that we don't know how to help them. Just to, just to put this in context, we in mental health, we don't cure many things. So the fact that we can cure 35 to 40, 45% is substantively important. And by the way, once someone who reaches the kind of bar of total normal eating and thoughts, they seldom relapse. Our studies and long-term follow-up suggest that they, 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 some do of course, but it's not very many. That's a very hopeful statistic. It is, it is. What happens if this is not caught? Certainly we know physically uh, someone could starve themselves to death. There are other cardiac issues. and But psychologically, developmentally, what happens to someone who doesn't get this help? When you think back to your adolescence and how important it is that from 14 to 19 or 20, all the things that you're able to explore in the way that you made relationships and explored friendships and romantic relationships and work and studies and so forth, Imagine all that is now subjected to you're constantly being in a hospital, being constantly at doctor's appointments, being underweight, malnourished, everyone uh, anxious about your well-being physically and emotionally. It basically sets up a, a lifetime of underachievement, misery, loneliness. And this leads to one of the other leading causes of death, which is suicide, which happens uh, not so much in teenagers, but as one gets older and the illnesses effects across one's entire life trajectory are experienced as being insurmountable and the wish to continue living is no longer there. And so those are the kind of dire outcomes that can come if you don't get early intervention. Along with cognitive behavioral therapy, what are the other tools? Are there pharmacological tools that can be used? And do some of the new semiglutides that are getting so much attention, ozempic, things like that, that may have properties to combat addictive behavior. Are, are these possible tools? Well, so far, study of medications in, for the treatment of anorexia nervosa specifically has been very uh, disappointing. So n no systematic uh, studies has found significant, meaningful treatment effects of adding um, any kind of psychotropic medication that we currently use just doesn't add much benefit. Now, if you have a comorbidity, like an obsessive compulsive disorder or depression or anxiety disorder, these medications may help with those, but that's quite different than directly helping with anorexia nervosa. So unfortunately, 
the tools, the medication tools we have still are not very reliably effective. Doesn't mean they aren't sometimes helpful and they, they can be, um, but systematically evidence-based, particularly in kids, we just don't have evidence to support that medications are gonna add much to behavioral treatments. Okay, and finally, what are you working on now? Where as, as you see patients, you're still a researcher. What are you looking at and what do you think is the next in the development and the push to treat eating disorders? Well, so thank you for asking that. So one is that, as I mentioned, FDT was initially used for anorexia nervosa. Then we did a definitive trial for FDT for bulimia nervosa. I'm wanting to examine whether family-based treatments are a transdiagnostic intervention, meaning will it also work for ARFID? So we have now an, an NIH-funded R01, which we're about halfway through, that examining family-based treatment for ARFID. It would be so handy if uh, one kind of treatment approach um, would be transdiagnostic because then therapists can learn and become highly skilled in this particular modality and treat the full range of eating disorders that present. So that's this one of the studies we're doing. The other thing that's sort of implied in all of that is that there is an access issue, and there's two different ways to think about access to evidence-based interventions. One is through increasing the pipeline of people who can do them. That means providing training in family-based treatment in this case. And we've been developing a strategy of using an online training strategy, which is low cost and because it's online and recorded, and that could increase the numbers of providers who are trained. We're looking at that and we're hopeful that we will get positive effects of uh, online training so that in-person training, which is very expensive and very time consuming and out of one's control, you have to go someplace and you know all that whereas online can be on demand and things like this. There are really possibilities of increasing that. But even if we increase the number of providers, the needs far outstrips what we can actually expect to even garner if we, we do need to increase the number of people, but it won't actually ever meet the full need. It's, it's a, a quarter to a third of people that actually access care who have eating disorders. And that's a really terrifying kind of statistic. And yet eating disorder specialists are very oversubscribed. It's very difficult to find someone. So the other thing that we've been doing that's exciting to me anyway, is we've been exploring something that called guided self-help for uh, family-based treatment. And this would be a model where the professional involvement is greatly reduced by two thirds. It's about instead of an hour, it's about 20 minutes. And the materials the parents learn, it's quite, quite empowering. The materials are uh, things that the parents can watch and read, and then the, the coach, we call that these therapists, will work with the family to make sure they understand the material. And the data that we have preliminarily on, in the studies we've done suggests that it's quite effective. That would mean more people could access family-based treatment. In this case, we're talking about for anorexia nervosa through this kind of platform than we could ever hope to get in direct service. We'd love to talk more about that as you get more results from your studies. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
Dr. James Locke, professor of child and adolescent psychiatry and pediatrics in the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He's also director of the Stanford Eating Disorder Program for Children and Adolescents. Now, this may have been the first time that you've heard the term curable in reference to an eating disorder. Well, we hope that Dr. Locke's expertise and the success of his research and family-based treatment gives you hope and a path forward. To help with that, we've got links to his work and to the Stanford Eating Disorder Program in our program notes. Thanks for being with us, and please do join us again on What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind, Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University. 